Good morning and welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, what Christians are is those who have taken up their cross that they might follow after Jesus. And if those, as those who have taken up their cross, what we do not need every Sunday, every week that we gather is a pep talk. What we don't need is good information. Like what we need is we need words from God. We need words that will show us who God is and what He's like. We need words that will help us pick up our cross and follow. We need to know what that looks like. And so it is a mercy that we have in front of us God's Word. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, where we get to hear from God, Scripture that is poured out from God. It's every breath, every word is from the mouth of the Lord. We're in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. This is God's Word. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you... Make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, just to be in the hearing of your word, words that have been breathed out by you is such a mercy. And I pray that you would help us receive it as such, that you'd help us to steward our time in your word together well, that we might hear from you, come to know you and love you more and walk according to your word, that we might be a glory unto your name for the sake of our own lives, but for the sake of your glory spreading throughout the earth, would you work in us? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kings, kingdoms, royalty, all these things pervade in our culture, even though we have no monarchy and no royal family. You see it in the shows that are all over. There's a show called uh, The Crown, where you're watching about royalty and kingship. Game of Thrones, another show about rising to the throne and reigning and ruling dominion. You see it in movies. Disney does this really well. Every movie is about a princess, a king, a queen, Prince Charming, something along those lines, it seems like. You see it in advertising. You have what we call, they call the king of the beers. Or you could go to Burger King or Dairy Queen. I mean, it's everywhere in our culture, and it's all over in our language. You are to be the king of the castle, and we play king of the hill. It's everywhere. But I think that one place that it's prominently displayed, maybe the most prominently displayed in our culture, at least uniquely, is our documented obsession with the British royal family. I, I think, I don't, I don't know their names. Is it William and Kate? Is that who just got married, you know, several, three, four years ago? Is that right? 23 million people got up early on that morning in America to watch the wedding of these two. Like 23 million people. That seems substantial to me to watch a marriage of a monarchy that we're not involved with almost at all. Indeed, we, we follow them. They're on every you know, magazine cover, it seems like. If you go through the grocery store, you see the royal family. They're having children. We need to know what their kids' names are, and then that becomes a trend of names. I mean, we just 
on, on. We are obsessed with royalty and royal families and kings and kingdoms. And those are great. Kings and kingdoms are, are great when they're serving us food our way, like Burger King. Or they're entertaining us on the television. Or we get to see uh, royal weddings, a, a fairy tale ending to love stories. So they're good when they're doing those things. But what happens when kings and kingdoms challenge us, start to push into our way of life? What happens if they tell us what to do? What happens if they tell us to respond to what they're saying? Well, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is easy to get on board with. Here's Jesus, the Son of God. He comes and identifies with sinners. He goes out into the wilderness. He takes on Satan head to head, and it's an easy battle for him. That's a king that we can get on board with. That's a king that we can follow. But he's about to challenge another enemy. Us. The kingdom is about to be proclaimed and announced. And that kingdom is not going to be a kingdom that's just going to be fun to watch from a distance. It's going to get into our face and call us to personal response because there's not one of us who has not been born a rebel to the true king and to the one true kingdom. We are all of us enemies of the true king, naturally. And so Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry, calling people to hear the good news of the coming kingdom of God, that it is at hand, and he calls people who would hear to respond rightly to it. Now John is the forerunner to this kingdom, forerunner to this ministry has prepared the way. He baptized Jesus. And after he baptizes Jesus, he gets himself into some trouble. Verse 14 says that John was arrested. Uh, Like the Old Testament prophets that he's in line with, his message, a message of repentance, wasn't a popular one all the time. And tended to make kings especially angry when they were called to turn from their ways. John had the same message to the crowd. He said, repent, repent. And this led to backlash in his own life. We don't see this until Mark chapter 6, where he's arrested. But in chapter 6, verse 17, it shares a little bit about why. He was arrested because it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. And indeed, the message of repentance reached to this king in this kingdom and when you speak truth to power, you have a volatile situation, and that's what happened with John. And yet we know of John that he was faithful to his ministry, he was faithful to his role to speak the truth and to point to the truth who was to come in the flesh, Jesus. And so after John's ministry, Jesus begins his public ministry. Verse 14, Jesus came, and he came into Galilee. So Jesus was inaugurated in his baptism for his public ministry, and he begins... And he begins his ministry in this place called Galilee, which if you don't know it, is not that remarkable because it's an insignificant place. I have a map here just to show a little bit about where Galilee is. It's in the Middle East, obviously. You see some cities around the Sea of Galilee, which we will talk about uh, coming through the Gospel of Mark. This green area down here, that would be Samaria, and just south of that would be Judea, where Jerusalem is. And so there are no major cities There's nothing that many of us have ever heard of. And indeed, even at that time, it was a somewhat insignificant place. And it's after John's arrest that Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. 
this insignificant place. And then he begins it after John, I think, gives the impression of successive ministries. It's not that they were contemporaries ministering at the same time, but that we have John, he's arrested and he's passed on the torch, he's passed on ministry to Jesus. And Jesus begins his public ministry much like John began his. John came proclaiming and Jesus comes proclaiming. He comes proclaiming, verse 14, the gospel of God. I love that, that the gospel is of God. So it's the gospel that's from God and about God. That's what Jesus comes proclaiming. And he comes saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time has been fulfilled. That makes us think, well, what time? What are we talking about? What time has been fulfilled? Remember when Mark started his gospel, he started, this is the beginning, which harkened back to Genesis, where we saw this other beginning from God, where he was initiating, out of the overflow of his character and nature, the beginning of creation, that he was pouring out something of his own initiative. Here in the gospel of Mark, we have a beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is initiating again, he's not initiating a creation this time, but a new creation, a redemption in his son, Jesus Christ. It was reminding us of God's initiation in new creation. This is then the time that has been fulfilled, the definitive moment in salvation history, the definitive moment in the history of new creation and redemption. It is now. The dawn of the salvation that has been promised from Genesis to Malachi has dawned in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That time has been fulfilled Jesus has arrived. Everything up until this point has been building and building and building and previewing and previewing and previewing until Jesus steps on the scene. The time, he says then, has been fulfilled. And so what does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now in one way, kingship started long before Jesus came on the scene and said that the kingdom of God is at hand. We see it several times mentioned in the Psalms especially. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and those who dwell therein. And it goes on to say in verses 8 through 10 more about the kingship of the Lord. That who is the king of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. He's not announcing uh, something that hasn't been heard of, that there hasn't been a kingship before. There has been. The earth is the Lord's. The people who dwell on the earth are the Lord's. Who's that king of glory? It's the Lord. He's the king. But the history of the earth and those who dwelt on the earth was not a history of the kingship of God and the subjection of people. It's a history of the kingship of God and the rebellion of people against their one true king. Israel displays this well. They have a long history of rejecting God as their king. It's a history of rebelling as the son of God. As a son of God, they reject their king. But God made a promise, even in the midst of their rebellion and rejection of him, that there was going to be a king who would come and he would have an eternal rule. He would sit on the throne forever. He would lead his people to their place, the promised land, the ultimate promised land, giving them ultimate salvation. And one author says this, that the Hebrew scriptures thus mingled the darkness of human sin, they're in rebellion to their king, with the light of the hope of a coming kingdom. 
But as the curtain closes on the Old Testament, Israel still does not know who will sit on that throne. And then Mark says that this is the beginning, the gospel of the Son of God. Jesus steps on the scene and he goes through the waters and he hears this proclamation in verse 11. You are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. And these words are more than just the father's affection and approval of his son. They are that. And it's amazing to see how God loves his son, how he has affection for his son, how he approves of his son. But these words allude back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, another psalm of kingship. Psalm chapter 2, we read this in verse 6 and 7. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree. See if these words don't sound familiar. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In verse 11 of Mark, Jesus' baptism, when, Jesus, when God says of Jesus, this is my son, the one I love, what, Jesus, what God is doing is he is setting up his king. He's saying that he has arrived. The king is making a declaration. This is my king. This is the one I talked about in Psalm chapter 2, the one who I'm going to set up as king. And then Jesus steps on the scene and he starts proclaiming something after he's baptized. He proclaims this, the kingdom of God is what? It's at hand. It's near. It's here in me. And so what is it? What is the kingdom of God? I like this short, helpful definition that the kingdom of God, the kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign reign and sovereign rule over his people in his place. It's life under the good reign and rule of God. That's the kingdom of God. It's where everything is in subjection to God as king. And with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in Mark, and with the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he says, proclaiming the gospel of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand, we know that God's reign and rule has broken in to the rebellion on the earth. Jesus proclaiming this is telling of this inbreaking. It's the gospel, the good news of the inbreaking of the reign of the king. In Jesus, the kingdom of God makes this personal appearance so much so that you could say it's at hand, it's near. He brings it near because he is there. It's near in his person, in his work. It's at hand in him. Now, if you are Jewish at this time, and you hear of a Jew who comes and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, you are saying, yes, it is about time. We have been ruled by Persians We have been ruled by Greeks. We have been ruled by Romans. We do not want their rule anymore. We want what you promised us, God. We want your reign and your rule with your king in place. We've been expecting this, so let's go. It's time to do this. Let's throw off the enemy. Let's occupy the promised land. Let's put this king on a throne in Jerusalem, and we'll worship around his throne. We'll worship in this temple. But a warrior didn't come, at least not the one they were expecting. 
He doesn't ride in on a white horse with a large army. He doesn't show up in a famous city. He doesn't go to an army and and start a rally where he's at. What we have is a man from Nazareth, a nowhere town, in Galilee, an insignificant place. And he shows up with no army. And he doesn't go to a significant city and start a rally. He says, proclaiming Galilee, the kingdom of God is near. And so we know from the start that this kingdom of God is not going to be like what was expected. There's going to be some parts of it that at least are very unexpected. He doesn't come and he doesn't say, you know what, the kingdom of God's at hand, let's go take out Rome. That's what they would have wanted. He doesn't say, you know what, we're putting all the kingdoms on the map and we're going to say, the kingdom of God's at hand, let's go conquer them all. Here's what he does. Verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand and so he says, repent and believe the gospel. The, the pronouncement of the kingdom of God are fighting words, right? When he says the kingdom of God's at hand, like that's, that's fighting words for any other kingdom. And if you're being reigned and ruled over by another kingdom and you say the kingdom of God's at hand, like you're, you're, on, you're on the docket now for, for being tried for treason. Right? He, he's picking a fight in a sense, right? That's what you'd think. The pronouncement of the kingdom, it brings it on a collision course with other kings and other kingdoms. A couple authors say it this way, that it's a declaration of war against the competing claims for authority. And it's an invasion of God's power and rule. It's a message that demands a response from all other kings and all other kingdoms. And so the kings and kingdoms that Jesus is calling out, though, aren't the ones that we'd normally think of, aren't the ones that are expected. He's not calling out political kingdoms. He doesn't call out geographic kingdoms. He calls out other claims to authority. And so we could say that the kingdom of God is on a collision course with any and all competing claims for authority. And that this, with, with this call to respond with repentance and belief, we know what authorities he's calling out to. We know what kingdoms and kings and queens he's calling out to. It's individual ones. Scripture makes clear that every single individual is fallen and in sin, but I think it gets more specific in a helpful way for us. It doesn't just say you're fallen, it says that you're an enemy of God. You've rebelled against the king. You deserve his wrath. Every single person has set up their own kingdom against the Lord, against the one true king. Everybody has this kingdom of self against the king, setting up their own kingdom, and they do it in lots of different ways, wanting to reign and rule their world their way. We do it with our lawns. It's going to look how I want it to look. Do it with our phones. I will put whatever app I want on this phone. I am the king of this castle. And we try to extend our reach as far as we can take it. What that is, is called sin. It's a rejection of God's good reign. And so this declaration of war that Jesus is making when he says that the kingdom of God is at hand is a declaration of war against us, against individuals, against anybody who would have this self-claim to authority. Setting up themselves or their lives and their kingdom As a competing kingdom to God, it's anything that will take the claim of authority over God as king. All of us are in that boat. We have all challenged the authority of God in our lives. We have all tried to set ourselves up in the place of king. We've tried to establish our kingdoms. We've tried to be the authority. We've tried to live life our way according to our desires, how we want to live them. That's what we're doing. 
We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against and disobeyed the one true king. And so when Jesus comes and proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, this is not merely, I love this kingdom from a distance. I'm so glad he took on Satan and he's declaring war on the kingdoms of the world. This is him confronting us. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's a confrontation of our kingdom of self. We've sinned and rebelled and we need to be confronted. The king, the true king, comes and declares war on that claim of authority that we're making in our own lives. One author said that if, you've, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Man, how true that is. Here's the king challenging you right from the beginning. Proclaiming the gospel of God isn't just Wow, this is really good news. It is good news. It's also a challenge to the good news that you've been believing up until that point. That you're a good king and that your kingdom is a good kingdom. That's the challenge that he gives us. Here is a God who comes down and he disagrees with us because he's the one true king. And he calls us to life in the kingdom. And so to hear the kingdom of God is at hand is to rightly hear God challenging our kingdom. Our kingdom of self. Or whatever king that we say that we're giving our allegiance to. The kingdom of God is a declaration against any competing claims of authority. But here's what it also is. It still is good news even for rebels. See, God knew the sins of the world. He knew that we were in rebellion. He knew high treason had been committed by every single person that had ever been created. He knew that. And yet it, he came. That we still have a beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that God, that one true king who had made us to live under his good reign and good rule, he loved us enough to still come after us. Now God knew the sins of the world. He knew people had thrown off his kingship and he still came. That is good news. And he didn't come in judgment. What does he say? He came to bring salvation. He came in order that people might be saved in in his name. So in the face of rebels and rebel kingdoms, there's good news. A king has come, and he's pronouncing that the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a victorious king. He's proclaiming his kingdom. And it's not victory in our name. It's not a kingdom in our name. Jesus comes and proclaims that. Jesus declares the kingdom of God is at hand. That is an indictment on all of our kingdoms. That is an indictment on setting ourselves up as king on all of the pursuits of lesser kingdoms, but it's also an invitation that life with God under his good reign, under his good rule, the way we are meant to live, what we are created to live, has been extended out to us. It's at hand, and there's an invitation for us to come into this kingdom. It's available to rebels. To be a part of this kingdom with Jesus as king requires a response. He says, repent and believe. I love this. The king doesn't, he doesn't demand that we pay our dues. He doesn't demand that we meet our physical fitness tests or his physical fitness tests that we might be a part. He doesn't say, like, well, what arms do you have? You, you have some swords? You got a shield? Uh, can you join the battle? He doesn't do any of that. He says, repent and believe. And these two terms are, are intertwined. They require each other. I like how one author says that the true Christian believes penitently and he repents believingly. There are two sides of the same coin. You repent and believe. Those go together. You believe penitently and you repent believingly. 
The announcement of the kingdom of God is both indictment, you need to repent, and invitation, you need to believe. It's both those things, and it requires us to see all these rival kings and all these rival kingdoms in ourselves and outside of ourselves as rivals to the one true king and his kingdom. And it invites us into the life that we were made to live. This is good news for us under his good reign and his good rule if we would repent and believe. Now, I think that we often don't think of repentance rightly. Repentance and belief are like the man who goes along and he finds this field and he finds a treasure buried in the field. And he goes in his joy and he sells everything he has so that he can buy that field. That's repentance and belief. Turning away from all other things, willing to sell them all in joy because this is so much better. Often we think of repentance as drudgery. Like, oh man, this is going to hurt. It is going to hurt, but it's going to feel really good. That this is worth it all. In his joy, he sells everything that he might have that. That's repentance and belief. It's this woman who who couldn't find medical help, who had a, a medical issue and is just going after Jesus, thinking that if I just touch his robe, maybe then I can be healed. She had gave up all other pursuits and said, I have one pursuit left. This is all I have, reaching out to him so that she might be healed. That's repentance and belief. It's seeing things rightly. It's turning from what's lesser to what's greater. It is always that. Repentance is always turning from what's lesser, less fulfilling, less satisfying, less ultimate to the ultimate. What's better? What's more? What's more satisfying? And so the call for repentance and belief is a good call from a gracious king who would have us live life in his kingdom who would have us abandon loyalty to lesser kingdoms that are going to fade away and lesser kings that won't live. To a king and a kingdom that are eternal and ultimate, it's good news for us. Abandoning loyalty to other kingdoms is to be freed up to give our joyful allegiance to the one true King Jesus. So the question that we need to ask is, has Jesus and the kingdom of God that's at hand in him, has it collided with the rebel kingdom in your heart? Has this God, the God of the Scripture, challenged you? Or do you have a God that's in your own image? Has the king's authority challenged your life? That's what the pronouncement, the kingdom of God is at hand, does. There are are rebels in the kingdom, but there will be no rivals. The king will see to that. And so the pronouncement of the kingdom of God requires a response of complete allegiance. Repent and believe. Turn from what's lesser to what's greater. Give total allegiance to me and cut off allegiance to all others. And that grand announcement of the kingdom of God that has been made in Galilee is good news, even for us here today. And that demand for total allegiance into this king in the one true kingdom, I think, is portrayed for us as Jesus goes and gets his first recruits. If you're going to start a kingdom, you get the best recruits in the best place. But Jesus is in Galilee, and he goes and he calls a few fishermen. Verse 16 and 17, we read this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. God, as he goes out, 
The kingdom of God is at hand, he proclaims, and he goes out and he calls a people. He always calls a people. He doesn't call just individuals. The kingdom of God is not a bunch of individuals all kind of on their own paths and they're trying to figure things out. The kingdom of God is a people called together under the one true king. It's a people together. And in establishing this kingdom, Jesus goes out and calls a people, not a person, a people together. And he calls to a few fishermen from Galilee. These are his first recruits. Probably not what you'd call the A-list in the world's eyes. And these are the people that Jesus goes after and calls out so that they might, what does he say, follow him. The call to follow is a call to discipleship. It's a call to taking on the life of a master and to making your life look like his life so that you might be like him. It's taking on his teaching, his way of life, and you trying to emulate it and trying to be that. It's a call into relationship with a teacher, a master, one who is over, and a student that one might take on his life. And Jesus makes this call very decisive. He calls them, follow me, and it's a call to decisively and exclusively follow after him. It's a call to decisively drop all other things and to follow after him. Here's a new master, and he is saying, you listen to me now, you report to me now. And what Jesus gives Simon and Andrew in this decisive, life-altering, life-altering call is also a promise. Come follow me, and what? I will make you fishers of men. Now, when I think of, of being a fisher of men, like I just have this picture of like lazy fishing along the bank and just casting the, the old lure out there and seeing what you can catch. But I think that the image is a lot more stark than that. It's more like the Coast Guard dangling from a helicopter trying to pull someone out of someone who's been crashed and wrecked at sea and is drowning. They're clinging to other things in the ocean, but their only hope is if someone comes from the outside and pulls them out. I think that because when you see there's images of fishing for people in the Old Testament, and they're obscure and hard to understand, but every single one of them occurs in the context of judgment. So I think the picture of being fishers of men is not lazy fishing along a riverbank, but the Coast Guard barging in when all of their hope is lost and trying to just grab a hold of a few and pull them out of judgment and wrath that they're under. Jesus is calling them to be that. He says, I will make you that. Follow me, that's what I'm going to make you. That's what Jesus is doing. That's why he came, that he might rescue, that he might go on this mission of rescue and pull someone out to save them from the wrath that is to come. Fishers take on the idea of a rescue mission to fish and save men from judgment, and that's in step with Jesus saying, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe. Be rescued from ultimate judgment. If you go on the same path and you don't repent, there's ultimate judgment awaiting. You need to turn from that. And I'm going to help create this community of people that know how to minister that kind of gospel. Repent and believe, and I'll make you fishers of men, he calls them. He's calling to them to learn how to take on the ministry of proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus' urgent call is held up with a promise. I'm going to make you fishers of men. It's an urgent task. And it's met with an urgent response. Verse 18. Immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, they left their nets and followed him. Jesus calls these men who are out working and doing some work, taking care of business at the end of a day. He says, follow me. Drop it right now and come after me. That's the call that he sends out to them exclusively follow me, leave everything and follow me, and they do it. 
immediately they leave everything. They leave their nets behind and they just drop it and they follow him. And the most amazing part of this response isn't its immediacy. That's pretty remarkable that they would just drop everything and go. No, the most amazing part of this response is the authority of the call. And the authority of the one who is doing the calling. That someone would drop everything and follow after it. Like it seems radical and crazy that they would just drop what they're doing and follow after this guy. But what's even more amazing is that his voice is so compelling, so authoritative that they would do those things. Here's one who has a different kind of authority. He's compelling in different ways. So we don't want to get caught looking at their response that we forget who they're responding to and what they're responding to. They're responding to one who has an authoritative, compelling voice. He's an authoritative, compelling one. I like how C.S. Lewis, he talks about the voice of Aslan, kind of the, the, the lion who's the picture of God in the Chronicles of Narnia. He calls out and he, he talks about his voice when he says that his voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. Like That's what's going on here. It's, it's different. They've heard lots of things. They've probably heard their people in their business say, come on, follow me, get over here. Lots of times. But this voice is deep. It's rich. Somehow it starts to work the fidgets out of them and they, and they drop things. And they go after and they follow after this call. There's one who calls in such a compelling and authoritative way that people will drop everything and go after him and take on his way of life, wanting to, him to be their master and they follow after him. We see this happens to more than one. In verse 19, going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. Right, kind of the hints in this passage are that, that James and John and their father Zebedee have a successful business. There's hired servants. They're doing work. Like they're gainfully employed. We, we don't know how lucrative it was, but like fishing was good in the Sea of Galilee. Like they could have had a decent chunk of money. And he says, just drop it. You're working for your father. He's got hired servants. You're hanging out with the family business. He says, come and follow me. And they do it. The family, the business, the work that they're even doing at that moment, even their dad, they, they leave behind. It doesn't stop them from following after Jesus. His voice is deep and rich, and it took the fidgets out of them. They leave it all behind, and they follow after Jesus. They are saying, I'm taking on Jesus' master. I want his life to be my life. I want to look like him. I want to become like him. I want to listen to this one. They are taking him on as master and discipler. You know, this call seems unique, but it harkens back to another call, a call that happened long ago. In the book of Genesis, chapter 12, there's this man named Abram. He was an idol worshiper, a rebel to the one true king. And here's what happens to him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Sounds familiar. Leave it all, and I'm going to show you where we're going to go. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So here we have a call from God to Abram, a rebel of the king, in such a compelling way, a decisive way, an authoritative way, that he leaves everything. He is called to leave his home, leave his family, and go. He doesn't even have a location. He says, I'll show you. It's similar to Jesus' call. Follow me. Take on my life. I don't, didn't give them where they're going. He said, come and follow me. He does it in a decisive, compelling, and authoritative way. And Abram leaves everything, leaves his goods behind, leaves his kindred behind, leaves his homeland behind, and he goes and he listens to the voice of God. And in this radical and comprehensive call in his life, what we don't want to miss is the graciousness of the call itself. Hey, what we have is a call to leave home and family and to go into a place I'm going to show you. But this isn't just a call to leave home. It's a call to ultimately come home. Abraham started to really look for home after that point. If you remember, he was an idol worshiper. And then it says in Hebrews that he started looking for a better country. A city whose founder was God. An eternal city. That's what he started looking for. In other words, God was calling him ultimately, home. Yes, Jesus makes a radical call in the lives of these four fishermen, a decisive call, a call to leave everything and to follow him. Let goods and kindred go, he's saying. But he is graciously calling them. He's not just calling them away from home, he's calling them to come home. Follow me is the call to come home. It's a call to take on the life of that we are meant to live under the good reign and good rule of the one true king in the ultimate kingdom. It is a call to come home. He is graciously calling them, not just away from family, but to join the family, the family of the kingdom of God. He is graciously calling them, not just away from their life, but into the school of eternal life where you take on the life of Jesus. He is calling them to life itself. It's a call of total commitment. But it's a call to the life that they were created to live. And it's compelling. It's a voice unlike any other. Do you know that voice? Has it rang out to your life in a compelling way? In an authoritative way? So much so that you know that you can't not respond to it. Do you know that voice? Here's the reality and the good news. is This is a voice... It doesn't wait for us to come to it and say, where are you, king? It's a voice that comes to us. You see, disciples are meant to go find their teacher. They're going to go find the one that they want to look like, the one that they want to learn under. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the king comes and finds his disciples. He seeks and saves those who are lost. He comes to them and he says, follow me. Not the other way around. Do you know that voice? This is a voice that demands a response. Demands total allegiance. It requires total allegiance. But it's a voice that's going to meet you where you are. And it's going to call you to repentance and belief. But that's a call to leave lesser things and for joy run after the thing that ultimately matters. It's a call away, yes, from family and goods and kindred and homeland, yes, but it's ultimately a call to come home, a call to live the life that you were meant to live. It's a call into life eternal with God as your king. This is a voice worth responding to. 
This is a compelling voice, an authoritative voice, and it calls us to repent and believe. Are we letting this voice challenge our lives? Are we letting its authoritative nature ring over our kings and kingdoms? Are we letting it compellingly call us away from what we know to something better? The reality is is that it is a voice we're responding to in one way or another. It's either challenging us in our own authority and the kings that we're following and the kingdoms that we're living for, or we're following after it and giving up those other things to follow after this one true king. Yeah, perhaps our culture is obsessed with kings and kingdoms and royal language and it pervades almost everything that we do. We can't get away from Burger King and Dairy Queen and royal families and babies and all the stuff that's going around them. But perhaps that's because we're longing for the one true king. Perhaps that's because we are wanting and longing after the kingdom. The good news, brothers and sisters, is the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is at hand. Come. Repent and believe. Follow after me. This king came not while we were following after him, but while we were his enemies. And even there died for us. As a family, as people who are saying, I give my total allegiance to this king, we take a meal. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's reminding us that we have a part in the kingdom of God because of what Jesus has done. That we were rebels and that he came to us and made a way for us to be a part. His body was broken, his blood was poured out that we might be part of the kingdom and have a feast in the kingdom for all eternity. If you have repented and believed, we invite you to come and take a part in this meal. Tearing off the bread, dipping in the juice, reminding yourself of what the king has done on your behalf. If you're not a believer, if you have not repented and believed, we'd say, please abstain from this meal. Instead, do what Jesus has said here. Repent and believe. And we'll walk you through that, what that means. If you don't know, find a believer, find a pastor. We'd love to share with you what it means to repent and believe. But don't take this meal. That is to take judgment. Instead, take Jesus, we plead with you. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, thank you for sending the king to displace us and knock us off of our thrones. It occurs to me today that my name means little king, and my parents probably thought that was cute at one time, and when I examine that in light of who you are and these truths today, uh, it's not cute, but it is profound and um, ugly because that is who we all are. We're born on the throne of our lives, and we want to rule, we want to control, we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it, but you have rescued us, God. You've come down and you have uttered your voice and called us to repent. And so we ask you today, I ask you, that there are probably people in the room who have not truly repented, who have not turned from their sin, who have not sold their old life and died to themselves and become your servants, God. So will you speak clearly to them today, hopefully 
you already have, God, but will you call sinners to repentance? Let them see your beauty. Let them see your goodness and your mercy. And let them also see their sin and be convicted and know that they need a rescue, God. Grant repentance and faith and let them put their trust in you and give them whole, give, give themselves wholeheartedly to your kingdom, Lord. And I also pray for those of us who are your subjects and who love you and cannot wait to take the Lord's Supper because we're so glad that you died in our place. We know we have no business in your army we don't deserve any of it. We haven't earned any of it, but you've been gracious to us. You shed your blood. You gave your body instead of ours. And we delight in the Lord's Supper, God. And I pray that you would also uh, convict us and help us to be fishers of men, not lazily sitting around a lake of souls, but people who are uh, warriors like you trying to rescue people from the flood of judgment and people are in it all around us. God, will you give us compassion for people who don't know you? Will you give us the urgency that you have so that as we're going, as we do our work, as we're everywhere in our lives, that we are always mindful that we need to be disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples. God, uh, grant us favor in those around us who don't know you and give us a hunger and a, and a joy even to speak of your kingdom and to call sinners to repentance and utter the same message you did, God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, thank you for reigning over us. Thank you for giving us this holy meal to feast on you, to remember what you've done for us. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.